Why don't we pray? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your kingdom that you've been teaching us about through our study of Mark. Thank you that you are the king of your kingdom that is breaking into the world and as heaven breaks into the world, it's, it causes disruption and we see that all around. But you are doing your work and we are invited in. And we thank you that we can be invited in so many different ways. And we pray that you would help us see and understand and delight in you more and more, the king of your kingdom whom we serve. So bless us as we open your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Working our way together through the book of Mark, it's been a a wonderful experience for me on Sunday mornings, uh, on coffee talk through the week as we discuss it together uh, in our life groups, uh, in private conversations. Uh, This study through Mark has, for me personally, helped me grow in my appreciation for Jesus my love for him, and I hope that it's been doing that for you as well. It's, it's a wonderful story about what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Uh, he continues to surprise us, to challenge us, to invite us, to equip us and to carry us with who he is, with what he taught, and especially what he's done for us. And one of the great things about working our way passage through passage in a book like Mark is that we run into passages that we might not get to if we didn't go passage by passage. Things that, topics that we might ignore or or even avoid. And today's passage is one of those passages that is very difficult. Jesus is asked a question about divorce. And all of us have been affected in some way or another by this topic of divorce. We, we know how painful, how heart-wrenching, and how life-impacting divorce is. Uh, not only on the people going through it, but on the, the family and the friends that love and care for the people. So I want you to know that I recognize how difficult this issue is, how it brings up painful memories, how it brings up hurt, and a lot of questions. And I want to say this isn't the only passage that deals with this topic, and so we won't be able to answer all those questions this morning. But what I would like to do is do my best to explain what I have learned about what Jesus tells the Pharisees who ask him a specific question and, and, and how this plays into our study of the book of Mark. So, we wanna dive into Mark chapter 10, verses one through 12, and we'll work our way through that passage. So Mark chapter 10, verse one. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful? for a man to divorce his wife. Now before we move on, I want to point out a few things just right here uh, from these two verses. Uh, 
First, Jesus has been on his way to the cross since the end of chapter eight. He began to teach the disciples about what it meant for him to be the Messiah. And it was going to involve him going to suffer and to die. And he told them, I must suffer and die. Jesus' course, it was set. He is on mission. He's on purpose. And in verse 1 of chapter 10 here, he geographically leaves the region of Galilee that has been mainly his focus of ministry so far. And he heads towards Jerusalem. He heads south towards Jerusalem where he will be crucified. But he's not going directly there. He's on his way. He's on purpose. And part of his purpose is to teach his followers, his disciples, what it means to be a follower, to be a disciple. What does discipleship look like? He's been helping them understand that the, the kingdom of heaven is completely different than the kingdoms of the earth. The king, in the kingdom of heaven, those who are great are those who are humble and who obediently serve. And they serve people no matter what their status in the earthly way of thinking is. And when they show kindness and when they serve people in front of them, they're actually serving Jesus. In the kingdom of heaven, we find life not by looking for it, not by striving to achieve something or to compete or anything like that, but by giving up of our desires and our hopes to Jesus, giving them over to Jesus, not giving up because he gives us deeper desires and, and he fills our deeper hopes. And so in giving them to Jesus, we gain so much more. In the kingdom of heaven, there's more going on than we can see. It's not just those who we think are a part of it. In fact, it's much bigger. In the kingdom of heaven, self-giving love is the most important goal, not looking out for number one and trying to be better than everybody else. And we've seen that the disciples are really struggling to understand this. Every passage reveals that they're not getting it. And the Pharisees are no different. They aren't even actually trying to understand the kingdom. They're trying to test and discredit Jesus so that they can keep things the way they're used to. So Jesus is on his way. Secondly, on his way, he goes across the Jordan uh, so he kind of goes out of his way across the Jordan and people come to him there and he teaches them. Part of his purpose is teaching people, caring for the people in front of him. He's always concerned with the people. And the region across the Jordan where he is now is called Perea. And this is likely the place where John the Baptist ministered and even where John the Baptist baptized Jesus. It's also the region that is under the power of Herod Antipas. And if you remember back in chapter 6 of, of the book of Mark, this is where uh, Herod had John the Baptist imprisoned and then killed because John the Baptist was saying that Herod's marriage to his wife Herodias was not lawful because they had both been married to other people before they chose to divorce their, their spouses in order to be married to each other. And John the Baptist was saying that's not lawful. Herodias held a grudge. You can read about this in Mark, Mark chapter six. And she manipulates things so that Herod has him beheaded. So could it be significant 
that the Pharisees approached Jesus about a question about divorce in the region where Herod had uh, been confronted by John the Baptist and then put John the Baptist in, in prison and had him beheaded. Could they be trying to make Jesus incriminate himself so that Herod would then have Jesus killed? That'd be quite convenient for the Pharisees who are trying to get rid of Jesus. Thirdly, the intent of the Pharisees was to trap Jesus. It says they were testing him. It, uh, and their test was a question about divorce, but it leads us to wonder what would the trap be? They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It's either lawful or it's not. What's the trap? Well, there's actually a lot more going on to this question than we understand uh, just by reading it here. During the time of Jesus, there was actually a debate between two different rab rabbinical rabbi schools of thought. There was the Shammai tra tradition and the Hillel tradition. And so let's look at Deuteronomy 24.1 that was the source of this debate. So Deuteronomy 24.1 says it's on the screen. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now, the question was about something indecent. The rabbi Shammai argued that this something indecent referred to sexual unfaithfulness. So the husband had a reason to believe that his wife had been sexually unfaithful. Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand, interpreted something indecent to refer to anything the husband didn't like about his wife, with the classic example being, she burned his supper. So, something indecent. He burned a supper, get rid of her. <laughs> and that was the, was the school of thought that became the common popular opinion, that any cause could be the source for divorce. So when Jesus was, was teaching, uh, they called that the any cause divorce, but really they, they didn't even have to say any cause. They just, when they said divorce, that's what they were referring to because that was the popular interpretation. So we see this in Matthew's version. He actually includes any cause, the same story, but told by Matthew. If we look at Matthew 19.3, it says, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So Hillel's interpretation was called, called the any, any cause divorce. It was the one that was most common. And you didn't even have to add the words any cause. It would be like 100 years from now, from now people trying to figure out what we meant by don't drink and drive. We don't say don't drink alcohol and drive, it's assumed. We just say don't drink and drive. My kids really tried to, try to get after me for drinking and driving when I drank some water as I was driving because they didn't understand the alcohol part, right? So when you're not part of the culture, sometimes you don't understand what is going on. So when Mark says, is it lawful to divorce uh, for a man to divorce his wife, he was referring to Deuteronomy 24.1 and to Hillel's interpretation that it was any cause. He didn't even have to say any cause. It would be, it, he would specify if it wasn't any cause that he was talking about. Does that make sense? So what this means is that the Pharisees were, had asked Jesus a very specific question about divorce. They were asking if they, Jesus if he agreed with the Hillel interpretation of the any cause divorce, that a husband could divorce his wife for any cause. 
And so now we can start to see how this was a trap. If Jesus said that he didn't agree with the any cause divorce, then he would be disagreeing with popular opinion and he would be disagreeing with Herod and Antipas's relationship as well as John. And so that was a trap. On the other hand, if he agreed, then he'd be agreeing with the Pharisees and he'd be uh, discrediting the Shammai school of thought. So it really was a well thought out trap. But of course, Jesus cannot be trapped. He recognized what they were doing and he flipped the whole thing around and he asked, he pointed them back to God's intention, back to God's design and and check out what he says in in verse three. What did Moses command you? He, He replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. See, the Pharisees, they were focused on what they could get away with. They were looking out for number one. They were wanting to be able to throw away a wife when they got sick of her, right? And so they asked, can a man divorce a woman for any reason? And Jesus didn't get caught in their trap. Instead, he asked what Moses commanded, and of course Moses didn't command people to get a divorce. He permitted it. And just like that, Jesus has reset the whole conversation so that he could continue to teach about discipleship about the self-giving life that is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And he applies it to this specific example of marriage, God's true design for marriage. And so then we go to verse five and it says, it was because because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made male and female For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So like I just said, the Pharisees, they were thinking about themselves, what they could get away with under the law of Moses, how they could manipulate things to their own benefit. And when they got tired of their wives, could they just discard them? Jesus exposes all that and he says it was because their hearts were hard that Moses wrote the law about divorce. And here's something else interesting. What Moses wrote about divorce in Deuteronomy 24.1 wasn't for the benefit of the men. It was actually written to protect women. Women were, were extremely vulnerable in this patriarchal, hierarchical, male-dominated culture. And unfortunately, women were thought of as property. And so, when Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24.1 that if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he was protecting the woman, the victim of the divorce, so that she could be free to go and find another husband because to be attached to a, a male in that culture was important. God was protecting women from the terrible consequences of a husband that divorced her. But rather than focus on all these reasons for for, and details around divorce, Jesus focuses in on the original intent of marriage. He goes right to the beginning of Genesis and he quotes chapter one, verse 27, where it says that, that God made humans in his image and the way he did that was by making male and female the same but different. 
And then he quotes the end of Genesis 2, where the first man was around before the first woman was, and, and he had no suitable helper. And just to be clear, even that word, that word's not intended to be a, a, a male is more important because he needs a helper. God is called a helper. So it wasn't a rank of any way. It was just to say that there was nobody like him, nobody suitable to him. So God created a woman. There was a little boy in Sunday school class, and the teacher was teaching about how God created everything, and then about how God took a rib from Adam and made Eve, and he was really interested in this, kind of concerned. His name was Johnny. And later in the week, his mother noticed him lying down as though he was ill, and and she said, Johnny, what's the matter? And Johnny said, I don't feel well. I think I'm having a wife. (laughs) Well, far from feeling ill, Adam was asleep when God took part of his side and formed Eve. And when he was awake and God brought him, her to him, he was thrilled. This was bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. He immediately recognized that she was like him. And then Genesis 2.24, the next passage that Jesus quotes says this, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. Jesus goes back to the original design and the beginning of the story, first chapters in Genesis, to explain God's intent for marriage. That two humans, male and female, the same but different, that they, that they leave the most intimate relationships that they've known, the relationship with their parents, and they come together, and they unite together in this relationship called marriage, and in that marriage, somehow they become one flesh. They actually become one. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus never wavers from what's most important, from God's intent, and from the reality of the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, Life is completely different, as we keep saying, than the kingdoms of this world. In the kingdoms of the world, people, they try to find life through all kinds of things in all kinds of ways that are not good for themselves or for other people. We try to figure out who we are by achieving something, by proving ourselves, by trying out different selves, or we try to get ahead by competing with each other, putting someone else down in order to look good trying to be known, throwing away things that we get sick of to try to find something better. These are all the things that Jesus has been addressing since the end of chapter eight when he started to teach about what it means to follow Jesus, to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Because his followers were steeped in the kingdoms of the world and the selfish way of thinking. Jesus is saying, no, there's a better way. And the better way begins with a Messiah who doesn't do things the way the kingdoms of the world does things. The the kingdoms of the world expect expect a Messiah to be the savior, to come in and defeat evil through conquest, through war, through destruction, through military victory. Jesus has been saying that in the kingdom of heaven, things 
are done differently than that. The king of the kingdom of heaven, the Messiah, Jesus, will bring victory, but it's not gonna be through conquest, through destruction, military power or might. It's not gonna be through fame or competition or casting people aside. It's gonna be through humble obedience that will take all the aggression, all the pain, all the insults, all the sorrow, all the brokenness, all the sin and the guilt and the shame, and he's gonna take it on himself and defeat it through his death. Totally opposite of what the kingdoms of the world are expecting. Jesus, the Messiah, was coming to rescue all of humanity, not just Israel, not just those who thought they were righteous, but all of humanity because all of humanity, every human that has ever existed is part of the brokenness, the sorrow, the hurt, the shame, the guilt, the sin. It's affected all of us. We have all participated in it. And so if he came to destroy sin and brokenness and shame and guilt and all that through conquest, through destruction, we'd all be destroyed. So he did it a different way, by taking it all to his death. And he says in his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the best, are those who humbly serve obediently, who see the person in front of them and love them because we're loving Jesus. Those who recognize and submit to God, the Father who loves us, uh, he loves us so much with an infinite love that's so great we don't need to prove ourselves or compete or try to be something great because he already sees us as something great. Somebody Jesus died for. So why am I talking so much about the kingdom of heaven in a passage that deals with marriage and divorce? because this passage is right in the middle of instruction that Jesus has been giving about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven that is so different from the kingdoms of the world. And marriage is an example of how the kingdom of heaven is different. Because in the kingdoms of the world, people look for spouses that will fulfill them. People look for people that will make them feel good, that will, give something or complete something in us. Which means that as soon as that person doesn't do that, we start to wonder, did I make a mistake? Can I get rid of this person? It's, like, it, it's easy to be like the Pharisees who ask Jesus, can I just get rid of her? For any reason. And Jesus comes back to the kingdom of heaven. He says that in the kingdom of heaven, God comes first. Look at verse nine. What God has joined together, let no one separate. It begins with God. He is number one. He is the number one relationship. When we are looking to him, when we are loving him, receiving his love, then we become self-giving lovers. We love by giving, not by what we can receive, because we've received what we need from God the Father. And then the next closest human relationship is a marriage relationship because the two become one. 
Jesus is pointing to the kingdom of heaven, to the way things are supposed to be, the kingdom he's bringing into the world. And I want to be really clear here. Like I said before, every one of us has been affected by divorce because we live in the kingdoms of the world. We've come out of the kingdoms of the world. We've been a part of the kingdoms of the world before we met Jesus. So some of us have divorce in our past. Some of us have walked through it. And some of us have walked through it personally or, or with others that have gone through it. And we know. But divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Divorce, just like any other failure, is what Jesus came to forgive. He came to forgive sinful, shameful, selfish people from all their guilt and their shame. And some of you are victims of divorce. You didn't want it. You didn't choose it. The next verses take us to a private place after the confrontation with the Pharisees where Jesus is with the disciples and the disciples want to know more. So listen to verse 10. When they, let, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Jesus actually does something amazing here. In the passage the Pharisees were debating on, Deuteronomy 24.1, where the debate about divorce was about what you do with this something indecent clause, Check out what it says again. Is Deuteronomy 24.1 up there again? Yes, something indecent. In the male-dominated culture, it was the man. It says, if a man marries a woman and finds something about her, it was the man who most always was the initiator of the divorce. And we already talked about how Deuteronomy 24.1 was a concession, and it was written for the benefit of the woman, But Jesus goes even further and he puts male and female on equal footing, back to where it was originally designed to be. He says the same thing to both the male and the female. If a man divorces his wife and then goes and does this, if a woman divorces her husband and then goes and does this, it was a male-initiated thing in Deuteronomy 24.1 and he elevates the woman and makes them on equal ground. Remember, Jesus is addressing the any-cause divorce, which was not a valid form of divorce. We don't know that from this passage, but in Matthew's account of the same story, Jesus made it clear that Deuteronomy 24.1 was a divorce not for any cause, but for sexual immorality, indicating that the any-cause was not a valid form of divorce. So if anyone divorces for any cause... The, valid is not divor- the divorce is not valid, therefore the one who initiated the cause of the divorce then goes and w- marries another person, they're committing adultery because it wasn't valid. But Jesus doesn't address the victim. He doesn't say anything about valid reasons for the victim. And so we need to go to other passages. Paul talks about abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7. There are other passages that deal with Valid forms of divorce. Jesus is saying the any clause divorce is not valid. So we can't answer all the questions from this passage, but some things I want to make clear right now from this passage. First, again, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. 
Some people have felt from the church that divorce is unforgivable. It's not the unforgivable sin. The only unforgivable sin is to say that the spirit of Jesus is not from God and to reject Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, Jesus says, I died for you. I am here for you. Let me in. Give your life to me and I will give you life. Ask me to forgive you and I will forgive you. Enter the kingdom of heaven where you are loved and accepted as you are. He will make changes in your life, but you don't have to earn it. Secondly, marriage is extremely important to Jesus because it involves two people that he loves infinitely. And marriage is a metaphor that Jesus uses, that God uses for Jesus' love for his people, the church, his bride. Back in Mark 2, Jesus called himself the bridegroom. Paul talks in Ephesians 5 about the beauty of this metaphor of Jesus' love for the church. And he starts off by saying, husbands and wives submit to each other. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. The self-giving love that builds the other up. Not tries to take from them, but builds the other up. Comes underneath, builds up. And then Paul says, what I'm talking about is Jesus and the church. That's how much Jesus loves his bride. He's willing to go to his death for her. It's no wonder he held marriage up to such high standards, and I'm so glad that he did. Because if he talked about marriage flippantly, then this marriage metaphor would be shallow. Friends, my family and Jesus, if you have given your life to Jesus, if you have put your faith completely in him, and if you haven't, you are welcome to. Ask him to forgive you. Give your life to him and he will give you real life. But if you've done that, you are the bride of Christ who takes marriage so seriously that he would die for his bride and he will never let you go. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you that even though it's broken, and we've seen it broken in so many ways, you still bring us back to the original intent that a man and woman love each other and are one. And you tell us that we can be one with you because you use marriage as a metaphor of your love for us, God. It's too much for us to grasp. It's so beautiful, so wonderful. You take us with our hurts, our sorrows, our brokenness, our sin, our guilt, and our shame, and you love us anyways. You died to take care of that. God, may our marriages reflect Jesus and his love for his church and the church's response to Jesus' love.
May we live that metaphor well, those of us who are married. Those of us who are struggling in our marriages, help us to turn to you and, and gain strength from you to love. Help us to get our love from you so that we can love. Help us to know what that love is and what it looks like. Give us your comfort. Give us your strength. Thank you that you love us. Bless us as we go and respond to your love. In your name we pray. Amen.